Hey, it's Brian, back with another Burr Month's bonus episode for those of us getting an early start on the Christmas season. Today, we are completing our nine-part series where I'm reading the 1918 YA novel Campfire Girls in the Allegheny Mountains, or A Christmas Success Against Odds. If you're just starting in with this series, you want to go all the way back to the beginning because we're reading a novel from start to finish. And if you've been here from the beginning, well, welcome back and thanks for sticking with us. Now, before we begin, a couple quick announcements. As we get deeper into the Burr months, no doubt you are looking for some new podcasts to add to your playlist. Well, you might have noticed the same thing I did. If you go on to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and type in Christmas, you're only going to see a small fraction of what's really out there. And oftentimes it's mixed in with a bunch of results that you aren't interested in anyway. Maybe some well-known podcast put out a single Christmas-themed episode, but that's probably not what you were looking for. Well, I decided to do something about that, so I put together what I'm calling the Definitive Directory of Christmas Podcasts. If you go over to christmaspast.media and scroll down under Latest Posts, you'll find it right there, and I'll keep it pinned there for the entire Christmas season. There's well over a hundred Christmas podcasts there in a variety of categories that I discovered through painstaking searches on all podcast platforms and regular search engines. So again, head over to christmaspast.media and take a look and let me know what you think. And of course, if you have a Christmas podcast or know of one that belongs there, reach out and let me know. You can get in touch at christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. Now that is also the email address to reach me if you want to share a Christmas memory in an episode later this season. I've said it before and I'll say it again. This year, with everything going on, maybe more than any other previous year, I really want to share your Christmas memories in these upcoming episodes. They mean a lot to me, and I know they mean a lot to the rest of the Christmas Past family because I hear it all the time. Even if you've shared a memory in the past, I'd love to share another one. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. You could just talk about what Christmas was like when you were growing up, your favorite things about the season, your plans for this year, or it could be an anecdote or anywhere in between. Just keep it reasonably short, clean and family friendly, and be sure to say your name and where you're from. All you have to do is record a voice memo into your phone and again, send it to christmaspasspodcast at gmail.com. And one more thing before we get started. Just this morning, I mailed out two Christmas cards containing Christmas Past stickers. It's one of my favorite ways to connect with the Christmas Past family, and maybe my next one will be to you. There is only one way to get a Christmas Past sticker, and that is to leave a review for the podcast on Apple Podcasts. It takes less than a minute, it doesn't cost you anything, and it really does help me a lot, more than you might think. It helps the show become more discoverable, as they say, when people are looking for Christmas podcasts on their favorite app. So leave a review, get in touch with me, let me know your mailing address, and I will be more than happy to send you a handwritten Christmas card and an official Christmas Past sticker. And now it's time to bring this novel to its conclusion. So sit back, relax, and please enjoy this final installment of Campfire Girls in the Allegheny Mountains or A Christmas Success Against Odds. Chapter 18. Helen in the Mountains It was snowing. The flakes that fell were not large fluffy ones, they were small and compact, so that as the northwest wind drove them into Helen's face, she realized she was being pelted with something more substantial than Eaterdown. The severity of the storm startled the girl. It spurred her to a fuller consciousness of her obligation to her friends that she remove from their minds all occasion for worry as to her whereabouts as soon as possible. 
Putting her muff up to shield her face from the cutting blast, Helen set out bravely up the street. She was not a timid or timorous girl. In fact, the words of warning uttered by her sister-in-law had made no lasting impression on her mind so far as her own personal safety was concerned. She scarcely thought of looking out for danger from any human agency as she left the house. As the storm was beating into her face, she did not attempt to look ahead much farther than each step as it was taken. It was necessary for her to lean forward slightly and push her head, as it were, right into the storm. And before she had reached the nearest corner, it became evident that she must undergo no little inconvenience, if not actual suffering, before her evening's mission were completed. Well, maybe this exercise will give me just the life I need to talk real business to Dave when he comes, she mused, punctuating her conjecture with a gasp or two as she fought against a gust of wind that forced her almost to a standstill. Winning this skirmish with the storm, she pressed forward again, when suddenly another gasp was forced from her by an entirely different cause. She almost stumbled over an object directly in her way, and as she recovered her equilibrium, she recognized before her the form of a small girl, scantily clad in a short-sleeved coat much too small for her, and a hood that came down scarcely far enough to cover her ears. Her hands were bare, and she held them up pitifully before the comfortably, to her, richly, clad maiden so out of her element in this poverty-stricken district. "'Please, miss,' the girl pleaded, "'won't you come to help me?' Ma's sick, she's fainted, and Pa's gone away. I'm all alone with her. Ma's down on the floor, and she don't move. I'm afraid she's dead. Oh, please do come, miss, just a minute, and... Where do you live? Helen interrupted, indicating by her tone of sympathy that she would do as requested. Right there, the little girl replied, pointing with her hand toward one of the houses a short distance ahead. Come on, please, just a minute. Help me get Ma on the bed. I'll find one of the neighbors to help after that. All right, go ahead, Helen directed. It seems that I am fated to do at least a little of the work that we set out to do but were prevented from doing by some unfriendly interests. It's a pity some of these people are so prejudiced for we could really do a lot for them. Helen's small conductress led the way to the entrance of a miner's cottage that, to all outward appearance from the front, was dark within. "'Haven't you any light?' she asked a little apprehensively, drawing back as if hesitating to enter. "'Oh, yes,' the other replied, eagerly, it seemed. "'There is a lamp burning in the kitchen, and I'll light the gas in the front room. Come on, please.' "'Where's your mother?' "'She's laying down on the floor in the kitchen. Come on, I've got a match. I'll light the gas in the front room.' If Helen had obeyed a strong impulse that was tugging within her to hold her back, she would have refused to enter.' Perhaps the reason she did not obey that impulse was the fact that a desperate effort to think of an other reasonable method of procedure was fruitless, and she must either go ahead as she had started, or turn away in confusion and leave the little girl in her distress and without an explanation. The latter opened the door, and Helen followed inside. It was difficult for the visiting campfire girl to figure out any reason why she should be fearful of anything this slip of a child might do, and yet the first act of the latter after they were inside sent through her a chill of terror. Slipping around her like an eel, the little emissary of trouble pushed the door to and turned the key in the lock. Helen was certain also that she heard the key withdrawn from the lock. Still her conductress, clever little confidence girl that she was, spoke words of reassurance that dispelled some of her victim's fears. 
Wait, she said. I dropped my match. I'll have to go to the kitchen for another. Helen's eyes followed the dim form of the child as the latter moved across the room and observed for the first time a line of light under what appeared to be a door between the front room and the kitchen. A moment later the door swung open and she was considerably relieved when she saw lying on the floor the apparently limp and unconscious form of a woman. Instantly, the rescuer's campfire training and the reviving of a person from a faint stimulated in her a sort of professional interest in the task before her, and she started forward to begin her work at once. First, she must loosen the patient's clothing to make it as easy as possible for her to breathe. Then, she must get her in a supine position with her head slightly lower than any other part of her body in order that the brain might get a plentiful supply of blood. The air in the house was heavy and stuffy. The front and rear doors must be thrown open. She must dash cold water upon the face and chest of the patient and rub her limbs toward her body. She ought to have some smelling salts or ammonia, but as these were lacking, she must get along without them unless the daughter of the unconscious woman were able to supply something of the sort. These things flashed through Helen's well-trained mind as she moved rapidly toward the kitchen. All apprehension of treachery left her as she beheld the evidence corroborating the story of distress that had brought her into the house. Then, suddenly, the whole apparent situation was transformed into one of the most terrifying character. A slight noise to her right caused her to turn. Then, a piercing scream escaped her lips as she saw a door open and beheld the dim outlines of two burly men approaching her. At the sound of her cry of alarm, they dashed forward like two wild beasts. The first one seized her around the neck to shut off further alarm. As those muscular fingers closed in upon her throat, it seemed suddenly as if her head were about to burst. Then, as the thumping in her ears almost completed the deadening of her auditory nerves, she indistinctly heard those words uttered in a hoarse voice, Look out, Bill. Don't kill her. As if surprised back into his senses, Bill loosened his hold on Helen's throat. She did not struggle or attempt to cry out again. Evidently, the purpose of the ruffians did not contemplate murder, and she realized that there was no wisdom in anything but submission on her part now. But she was not given time to recover completely before the next move of the captors was made. While one of them held her in a vice-like grip, the other shoved a gag into her mouth and tied the attached strings tightly around the base of her head. Then he bound her hands together in front of her with a strip of cloth. There, said the man, whom the other had addressed as Bill. You sit down in that chair and keep still and you won't get hurt. But the instant you go making any racket, you're liable to breathe your last. All right, Jake, go and get the machine. Jake! The exclamation, though not uttered, was real enough in her mind. Even with the deafening pulse of choking confusion in her head, it had seemed that there was something familiar in that man's voice who had warned Bill not to kill her. Was it possible that this was Mr. Stanlock's former automobile driver? Jake went out the back way, closing the door between the front room and the kitchen as he went. Helen was now left alone in darkness with Bill, who, she thankfully observed, seemed disposed to pay no attention to her as long as she remained quietly in the old loose-joint rocking chair in which she was seated. Ten minutes later, an automobile drove up in front of the house and Jake appeared. "'It's almost stopped snowing, luckily,' he remarked, "'or we'd have our troubles making this trip tonight. A little more snow and a little more drifting and we'd be in a pretty pickle.'" Helen was certain she recognized Jake's voice now. 
How she wished she could get a glimpse of his face in even the poorest candlelight. Bill now threw a large shawl over her head and brought it around so that it concealed both the gag over her mouth and the rag manacle on her wrists. Then he pinned it carefully so that it might not slip away and ordered her to go with him quietly out to the automobile. Jake had just made an inspection up and down the street and reported the coast clear. Now mind you, young lady, Bill warned significantly, not a word or a wiggle out of the ordinary or you'll get your final choke and you know what that means. Yes, Helen knew, and she had no intention of futilely provoking a repetition of such punishment. She accompanied her captors submissively and was assisted into the machine. Then something happened which might almost be said to have delighted her if it were not for the strain of benumbing fear that was gripping her. Jake went around in front of the machine to crank it. For one moment, the strong acetylene light from the one of the lamps fell full upon his face. Helen recognized it. Her surmise as to his identity was not a mistake. A minute later, the automobile was traveling at a high rate of speed over the streets. Ten minutes later, it passed the city limits and was kicking the three inches of snow up along a country highway. On and on it sped, one mile, two miles, on, on, until the probable distance Helen was unable to conjecture, on, on, over smooth roads and rough roads, uphill and downhill, into the mountains. Then suddenly Bill, who was sat in the seat beside her, pulled a lightweight muffler from his pocket and tied it over Helen's eyes, saying coarsely, Not that I'm afraid you'll do any mischief with those pretty eyes of yours, but we may as well guard against accidents. You couldn't trace this route again anyway, could you? Helen did not attempt to answer with either a shake or nod of her head. She was disappointed at the act of her captor in blindfolding her, for she had been watching their course as closely as possible in order to photograph it upon her mind for future reference. Jake was a good driver, that much must be said for him, and yet, after they struck the mountain road, the progress was much slower. From the time that her eyes were bandaged, Helen's only means of determining the character of the road over which they were traveling was the speed or slowness of the automobile. Nor could she compute satisfactorily the time that passed during the rest of the trip. But it ended at last. The machine stopped, Helen knew not where, and she was assisted out by the two men who led her, still blindfolded, along a fairly smooth trail, up the side of the mountain or a steep hill, then along a fairly level stretch until at last the prisoner knew that she was passing under a canopy or roof of some sort, for there was no snow underfoot. Moreover, their footfalls produced a sound, somewhat of the nature of a soft resonant reverberation of a million tiny echoes. But presently, they were out in the open again, as evidenced by the snow and the brisker atmosphere, and Helen shrewdly observed to herself, that was a tunnel, I bet anything. Two hundred feet further up another gentle incline, they reached a place of habitation and entered. Helen had no idea as to the appearance of the exterior, but when the bandage was removed from her eyes, she was able to look about her, she made a clever surmise, not very far from the truth that she was in a log cabin. Every inch of the walls and ceiling except the windows and doors were plastered. The doors and windows were fitted with the crudest kind of casing. A few unframed colored pictures were pasted on the walls. The furniture of the room consisted of a few chairs, a table, and an old trunk. A kerosene lamp on the table lighted the room. 
Here's one of them, Mag, said Bill, addressing a large, coarse-featured but remarkably shrewd-eyed woman who opened the door and received them. Can you keep her safe? You bet your bottom dollar I can keep her safe as long as there is any dough in it for me, was the reply in an almost man's voice. Well, get into good practice on this one keeping prisoners, the first speaker advised. We're gonna have a dozen more here before long, and then you'll have some job. Chapter 19. The Subterranean Avenue For more than half an hour, Mr. Stanlock waited upstairs, nervously, eagerly, expectantly, apprehensively, for a report from Lieutenant Larkin and the four men who remained in the cellar of the Buckholes house to remove the pile of scrap lumber under which it was suspected might be found a clue as to the whereabouts of the missing twelve girls. Interest in the search within the building had suspended other activities in the neighborhood, as it was felt that further progress must depend upon results at this point. So the score or more of uniformed and citizen policemen waited as patiently as they could in or around the house of mystery, becoming more and more impatient as the minutes grew into the twenties and then the thirties, and still nobody came upstairs to announce indications of success or failure. The noise of the striking pieces of lumber against one another had not been heard for many more than twenty minutes. In fact, no sound of any kind came up the cellarway following the first quarter of an hour of rapid labor on the part of the five active searchers below. At least one of the men, more nervously eager for information than the rest, shouted down the cellarway to the lieutenant inquiring how he and his helpers were getting on. There was no answer. He shouted again. Still, no reply. Then he announced his intention to descend into the cellar to investigate. Wait, said Mr. Stanlock. There are some tracks in the dust on the steps and Lieutenant Larkin doesn't want them disturbed. Let me go. Although his apprehensions had not diminished, the mine owner's nerve was considerably strengthened by this time perhaps as a result of his return from a stuffy basement atmosphere into a region of better ventilation. As he started down the steps with the flashlight of one of the policemen in his hand, he was surprised to feel a strong current of wind blowing upward into his face. They must have opened one of the windows, he surmised, but then he quickly dismissed the suggestion after flashing his light around the cellar. The pile of lumber had been moved to the opposite side, and in the section of the floor it had formerly occupied was a hole three feet in diameter. That's where the wind is coming from, Mr. Stanlock decided. It's the mouth of the old mine we used to hear about years ago. But where's the other opening? Funny nobody knows about that. This end has been covered up with that heavy door and concealed with a layer of earth. When our men moved the pile of lumber, they observed that the earth had been disturbed recently and shuffled it away and found this hole. Mr. Stanlock directed the rays of light into the hole and discovered a flight of steps cut into the hard clay. The lieutenant and his men are down in there, he concluded. I think I'll follow them. He descended cautiously into the hole. Half a dozen irregularly formed steps brought him to a slope leading downward on an inclined plane of six or seven degrees. He was astonished at the degree of preservation of the walls, ceiling, and supports, considering the years that had elapsed since the mine was last working. The passage continued as a downward slope for about 50 yards and then became almost level for a like distance. Only in two places had the walls or ceiling fallen in any considerable extent, and in neither of those places was the obstruction so great as to constitute an impassable barrier. 
As he proceeded, Mr. Stanlock peered ahead anxiously in the hope that he would discover the lights of Lieutenant Larkin and his companions. But he walked nearly 100 yards and through an irregular and characteristically jagged passage before he caught sight of anything indicating that there might be somebody else besides himself in the abandoned mine. Then, suddenly, rounding a sharp point, he came upon an advanced party of searchers approaching him. What did you find? The mine owner inquired before any surprise greetings could be exchanged. There's another outlet to this place somewhere, isn't there? Yes, there is, was the reply of the officer in charge. This gallery runs on for another hundred yards, piercing Holly Hill right through the center. You know the bluff and the rocky slope behind the old mill? Well, it seems that this mine was cut right through at that point. But there was a cave-in that filled up that opening. These rascals that kidnapped the girls evidently were associated with the people that rented the Buckholes place and cut the passage through. The girls have been here all right, but they're gone now. They've been taken out of this end of the mine and spirited away in some manner. This means that the scoundrels have a larger and more effective organization than we have ever suspected. Such a case of wholesale kidnapping was never heard of before. How can you tell they passed through here? Mr. Stanlock asked. By this, principally, the lieutenant answered, holding up a woman's handkerchief that he had picked up, and by the fact that there is a trail in the snow from the opening of the mine to the alley behind the old mill. Mr. Stanlock's face shone deathly pale in the glare of the flashlights. The new element of suspense had brought him again to the danger point of a collapse that had compelled him to withdraw from the active search nearly an hour before. His voice reflected the distressing strain under which he was laboring as he put the next questions. What became of them? That's the problem we've got to solve, Larkin replied. Apparently, they were loaded in automobiles and rushed off to some retreat of the scoundrels. How in the world could they do it without somebody seeing or hearing what was going on? Oh, said the lieutenant without a suggestion of doubt in his voice, that wasn't very difficult if there were enough of them working together. The evidence of cleverness and skill is not nearly so much in the handling of this affair at the mill end of the mine as it is at the house end. That was a mighty smooth piece of work getting all of those girls into the old house however it was done. Mark my word, you'll soon find that a very clever trap was set for them. But come on, we've got to get busy before the snow makes it impossible to follow them. Chapter 20 Twelve Girls in the Mountains Ethel Zimmerman and Ernestine Johnson fainted. All the rest of the twelve girls who had been decoyed into the Buckles' house by the sympathetic Mrs. Eddy were thrown into a panic, and the terror of the situation was not mollified in the least by the sudden appearance on the scene of five men. Where the men came from so suddenly was not at all clear. Undoubtedly, they had been hidden somewhere, but that place could not be determined, for none of the girls remembered from what direction they had made their appearance, north, south, east, west, up, or down. They were just there, and that was all there was to it. The men did not look like ruffians exactly, although they were not clad in gentlemen's clothes. The girls were huddled together in the dark, scantily furnished front room, which at some point probably had served the purpose of a combined parlor and reception room. The next apartment, probably designed as a living room, was lighted by a single gas jet turned low. Ethel and Ernestine fainted in the midst of the address of warning and command from the spokesman of the plotters. This was a signal for a rally to their aid on the part of the other campfire girls best gifted with presence of mind. 
Marion led this move and was quickly assisted by Ruth Hazelton, Julietta Hyde, and Mary Chrismore. No objection was offered by the men to this proceeding, as they were intelligent enough to realize that the success of their plot depended largely on a careful guard against a noisy panic that would attract attention from without. Somebody get some water, quick, Marion directed, as she proceeded to go through the reviving formula in which all of them had been thoroughly drilled. I'll get some, Mrs. Eddy volunteered, indicating by her offer and actions that she was an efficient ally of the kidnappers. She hastened into the kitchen and soon returned with a large dipper of water. Marion took it from her and sprinkled some of the liquid onto the faces of the unconscious girls. The latter quickly recovered and sat up. But meanwhile, the five men were not idle. The leader addressed the girls again with more gentle words and manner, realizing, as only an intelligent criminal may do, that a confidence man's method is the best method for producing a desired illegal effect. In a degree, he was successful, attempting to reassure the captives in the following manner. Now girls, you have nothing to fear from us if you obey orders. We don't wish to harm a hair on any of your heads. We are merely determined to get what we have set out for, and we are going to use you to help us get it. If you try to balk our purpose, you must take the consequences. Otherwise, you will suffer only such inconveniences as go naturally with the experience of being kidnapped. And try to realize this, that being kidnapped isn't such a terrible thing if you are in the custody of gentlemen kidnappers. That's what we are, gentlemen kidnappers. All we ask of you is that you prove yourselves to be what gentlemen kidnappers prefer above all others, namely, real ladylike prisoners. Now, he added, after a pause during which he surveyed his audience as if to determine the effect of his words, as soon as the two young ladies, who were so unfortunate as to make the mistake of connecting a tragic prospect with this affair have fully recovered, we will proceed. That fellow is disguised, declared Marion in a whisper to the girls nearest her. In fact, all of them are. Observe that every one of them wears a beard, mustache, or short side whiskers. Watch their eyes and mouths and every expression on their faces so that we may be able to identify them if we are ever called upon to do so. Now, girls, said the spokesman with well-simulated gentleness, no more of that. We do not want to be unduly rude with you, but if there is any more whispering, we'll have to resort to measures that will make it impossible. Now, I think you are all ready, so just follow the leader, and some of us will bring up the rear. We will proceed first into the basement. Tremblingly, the twelve campfire girls followed two of the men down the cellar steps. It was evident to them that resistance would be worse than useless. A single blow from the fist of one of those powerful men would stun any of the girls if it didn't knock her unconscious. In fact, their captors could make quick work of them if necessary, and cooped up as they were in this isolated prison, they could scarcely hope to send forth an effective cry of distress before they were rendered physically incapable of sounding further alarm. All of the gentlemen kidnappers were supplied with electric flashlights with which they illuminated the cellar and revealed to their captives a hole three feet in diameter in the ground floor and seemingly a flight of steps leading downward. Don't get scared, young ladies, advised the gentleman leader of the gentlemen kidnappers softly. That hole is merely the mouth of an old coal mine. We will conduct you through the mine to the other end, which is concealed from public view at a distance, and there we will find four automobiles waiting for you. Lead the way, comrade kidnappers. 
The two head men descended into the hole, and the girls followed Indian file. The spokesman and one other man descended last as a rear guard. One of them remained in the cellar with Mrs. Eddy, and together they hurriedly replaced the old door over the mouth of the mine, shoveled some loose earth over this, and then covered the earth with eight or ten thicknesses of scrap lumber loosely tossed in a heap. Meanwhile, the girls, guided by the lights ahead and aided by the two lights behind, which were directed helpfully along the path, made their way laboriously down the slope and along the many-angled gallery to the opening at the other side of Holly Hill, as the high, rounded elevation on and around which the city was built was called. Under different circumstances, undoubtedly they would have been much interested in this experience as a subterranean exploration. They had all the time they might need for such exploration, for the dusk of evening had not yet developed into darkness, and they had to wait in the mine over an hour before it was deemed safe to venture out with their captives. Near the opening at the foot of the bluff behind the abandoned flour mill, gags were tied tightly over the girls' mouths, and their hands were bound in front of them, and they were assisted one by one down a gradual but rough incline and into the waiting machines. Snow falling in millions of huge flakes, a fact that evidently caused the kidnappers more worry than the possibility of detection by persons in the vicinity, for remarks escaped some of them relative to the importance of haste before the roads became impassable to automobiles. But the storm served them one good purpose if it menaced them in another respect. It rendered the darkness of the night more impenetrable and kept the streets almost free of pedestrians. Moreover, the plotters were well supplied with means and methods of guarding against escape or rescue. The gags and cloth manacles were so well made that one might have suspected them of being products of a manual training school of burglars' wives. During the passage from the mine to the automobiles, each of the girls wore a shawl thrown over her head and pinned closed at the front, thus concealing both the gags and the manacled conditions of their hands. At last, they were all in the machines, each of which was in charge of a driver. Three of the girls were put into each automobile, and one of the men got in with them to see that their conduct was as per scheduled program. Then the start was made. On and on they went, into the country and along a road that Marion knew led into the heart of the mountains. She could see the dim, shadowy form of High Peak in the distance. Meanwhile, as she peered out eagerly into the darkness, with an irrational longing for rescue from some miraculous source, for this was the only kind of rescue that seemed possible under the circumstances, she kept working at the bonds around her wrist and the gag in her mouth slyly, and without obvious effort, until with joy she realized that she was at least partly successful. I am certain I could shove that thing right out of my mouth and give the most piercing scream ever heard if anyone would only come along and hear me, she told herself. The snow kept on falling heavily, much to the alarm of the kidnappers and the joy of the kidnapped, but the automobiles reached the mountains before there was any serious delay. It looked indeed as if the trip would be successful from the point of view of the captors of the campfire girls. But at last, the snow became so deep that the girls could feel that the automobiles were laboring under almost insurmountable difficulties. Marion heard several curses uttered by the chauffeur, and the man inside the car echoed them once or twice. Finally, the automobile came to a full stop and the driver could force it along no further. A consultation with all three of the men taking part was held. 
In the midst of their debate, something happened that changed the aspect of things almost as completely as might have been accomplished if Marion's dream of a miraculous rescue had been realized. Other persons were on the scene and they were talking to the driver, inquiring if they could be of any assistance. We are a patrol of Boy Scouts, one of the new arrivals said. We've lost our way, but that doesn't need hinder our helping you out of your scrape. Maybe you can direct us how to find our way back. Marion never felt a more intense thrill in her life than she felt at the sound of that voice. She looked out of the window and saw a group of eight or ten boys, each of them carrying a gun close to the automobile. With an effort that had behind it all the power of the most joyous impulse of her life, she swung her bound, clenched fists right through the pane of glass, pushed the gag from her mouth, and shouted, Clifford! Clifford! This is Marion! All of us girls are being kidnapped by these men! Shoot these rascals, and shoot to kill! Chapter 21 Thirteen Girls in the Mountains Marion's plea for aid did not reach Clifford and the other Boy Scouts to whom it was addressed without interruption. The latter half of it came in jerked and disjointed phrases, and the tone of utterance was one of extreme fear and distress. Clifford and Ernie Hunter, the leader of the patrol, although amazed beyond description, realized that this appeal for assistance was no idle one, and it was up to them to do something quickly, or action on their part might soon be too late. You boys take care of the men in front, and Cliff and I will settle this affair back here, Ernie shouted. Don't let them escape. With these words, the patrol leader seized the latch on the nearest auto door and pressed down on it. As he did this, the door flew open with a heavy swing, and Ernie jumped aside just in time to ward off a body lunge blow from the fist of a man who sprang out of the machine like a beast leaping with all fours. In less time than it takes to tell it, two of the men had broken through the cordon of Boy Scouts around the automobile and disappeared in the darkness. The third, Mr. Stanlock's chauffeur, was not so desperately courageous. The menace of two or three gun muzzles held within a few feet of his face was more than he cared to oppose, so he remained a prisoner. "'Look out, boys,' called out Hazel Edwards. There are three more automobiles coming along behind with desperate men in them. Each of those autos has three girl prisoners in charge of two men, and one of them the driver. Miles, you and Hal and Jerry stay here and guard the prisoner and protect the girls against those rascals if they return, Ernie directed. The rest of us will run back a short distance and meet the next machine before they suspect something's wrong. As he finished speaking, Ernie led the way, followed by four other boys, back through the snow twenty or thirty yards and then stopped and listened. A short distance before, they heard a sound, the cause of which could not be mistaken. It was the rapid, pulsating chug-chug of an automobile engine. They waited for a few minutes, but it appeared to be coming no nearer. The snow has stopped this one too, said Clifford. Come on, and we'll give them a surprise. A few paces farther brought the boys in view of a machine with the engine running idly and no driver visible in front. Naturally, this made them suspicious, and a halt was called for a little circumspection. Then, carefully, cautiously, they advanced toward the automobile, keeping nervous watch on all sides to avoid a surprise. They reached the machine, which they had been able to locate by the noise of the engine, and found it also deserted, save for the three prisoners bound and gagged in the car. 
While the other four in the party of rescuers kept watch against a surprise, Clifford cut the bonds on the wrists of the girls and removed the gags from their mouths. Where did the villains in charge of this car go, was the first question he put to the released prisoners. They skipped, replied Violet Monday. Two of the men had been in the machine ahead and came back and said that the game was up and that they were discovered by a force of Boy Scouts armed with guns and they couldn't afford to put up a fight for even if they won the whole country would be aroused and they couldn't hope to carry out their original plans. They went back to warn the other men. No doubt you'll find the other machines abandoned too. All right, said Ernie, you girls stay here in the car and keep warm. We'll be back as soon as we can find the others. The boys found the other two automobiles also abandoned and released six more campfire prisoners. Now let's return and get the head auto started back first, Ernie proposed. This plan was adopted. Arrived at the machine in which Marion, Hazel, and Julietta had been prison passengers, they found a new and important development in affairs. Jake, the chauffeur, had confessed. He had offered to conduct the boys to Helen's place of detention and effect her release if the boys would let him go. It was less than half a mile away. The boys agreed. Clifford suggested that the girls remain in the automobile while the scouts made the proposed raid, but they objected strenuously. In a short time, the rest of the girls were brought forward, informed of the plan, and the start was made. All of the girls insisted on taking part in the expedition. In less than half an hour, they were at the door of Helen's prison where Jake gave the open sesame knock. An uncouth woman answered the door. Behind her stood a man who proved to be her husband. Jake pushed the astonished pair aside and went directly to the side of the room opposite the entrance and lifted a bar across a door opening into another room. As he opened this door, Marion rushed forward and was first to greet a slender, pale-faced girl who stepped out eagerly toward her rescuers. Helen, cried the girls in chorus. Jake slipped out and was seen no more. Chapter 22. A Sleigh Ride Home That was a meeting not soon to be forgotten. It was a signal for the casting away of every element of secrecy, and Helen told her story. She told the story of her brother, of her sickness when a child, of the resultant distortion of his character into that of a man, of strange and incongruous genius and weakness, and of the embarrassment he had caused her and her mother. He it was, she said, who had written the Skull and Crossbones letter. Who wrote the other anonymous letter that you received at the Institute, Hazel Edwards inquired. I don't know, Helen replied with a faint smile. Perhaps these boys can answer that question. I must plead guilty to that, announced Clifford, advancing with a bow. But what's the surprise you were going to spring, inquired Ruth Hazelton mischievously. Is this it? Now never you mind, said Clifford. Things didn't go just right. This kidnapping affair interfered with our plans, and they are hereby called off. We didn't want you to know we were here. Two of the boys had been dispatched as messengers to Holly Hill for the vehicles to take the girls back to Marion's home. About two o'clock in the morning, Mr. Stanlock, several of his neighbors, and three policemen, led by the two scout messengers, burst into the room and announced that they had brought three bob sleds to give them all a sleigh ride. And a glorious sleigh ride home it was for all except the two prisoners whom the police took into custody. The story of the campfire girls in the mountains is told, all but the subtitle, A Christmas Success Against Odds. There was a real success in store for them. 
The police made a raid, but found that the criminal element that had gained a throttle hold on the labor organization in the mines had cleared out so clean that not a living vestige of them could be discovered. The way was now clear, and the campfire girls carried out their original plans, successfully and much to the benefit of the poverty-stricken families of the strikers. But the history of the Flamingo campfire is by no means complete with this narrative. It seems to be a peculiar lot of these girls to become associated or in touch with events of novel, interesting, and sometimes thrilling character, and those who would follow their further experiences along these lines should read the second volume in this series entitled Campfire Girls in the Country or The Secret Aunt Hana Forgot. Well, thank you so much for listening, and thanks for sticking through this entire series if you're one of the people who did that. This was our nine-part reading of the 1918 YA novel Campfire Girls in the Allegheny Mountains or A Christmas Success Against Odds. I certainly hope it's brought a little bit of Christmas spirit into the early part of the Burr months, and I hope you'll stick with me for the rest of the Burr months. I'm not sure what comes next, but it'll be something equally festive. Until we meet again, let me remind you as always that Christmas Past is produced in wonderful Willow Glen, California by yours truly, Brian Earle. You can drop me a line anytime, and I wish you would. I love hearing from you. Even if you just want to tell me what's going on, how you're spending the Burr months, what your plans for Christmas are, or share a Christmas memory. You can reach me at christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com or connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I would like to invite you to join our private Christmas Past Facebook group if you haven't yet. We're celebrating the Burr months and, of course, the Christmas season. And drop by christmaspast.media for articles, quizzes, infographics, and more. And until we meet again, stay safe and healthy, look out for one another, and may your days be merry and bright. <laughs>